Bienvenidos, y'all. Welcome to TribCast. This is State Senator Leticia Vandepute, your Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor of the Lone Star State. By the way, home of the San Antonio Spurs. Go Spurs, go. I have a parliamentary inquiry for Ross, Amon, and Reeve. At what point does Alexa have to raise her hand or her voice to be heard over the men in the TribCast recording room? And for the answer we've all been waiting for, here is your host. Reeve Hamilton. Thank you. This is reporter Reeve Hamilton here with the TribCast for the second week of June. Joining me is executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Reporter Alexa Yura. Hello. Reporter Amon Bethija. Hi. Thank you all for joining us. So I think Eric Cantor just lost his election, and so uh, he'll be leaving D.C. Surprise, surprise, right. Yeah. Before we get to that, let's talk about some shakeups here in Texas, uh, specifically in the Wendy Davis campaign. Uh, who wants to fill us in on that? Amon, uh, you tweeted about it. Yeah, you, lived, you, <laughs> you, you tweeted airport. and you lived in Fort Worth. Ergo. Tell us all about it. Better yeah. up. Well, Wendy Davis's uh, campaign manager uh, was Karen Johansson. I think Johansson. Johansson. Johansson she hired her in the fall uh, and got a lot of attention because she was kind of nationally known as someone you want in a tough fight uh, and a progressive. Uh, and today, uh, she's, the campaign announced that she was leaving. Uh, and Representative Chris Turner is going to take her place, which is kind of unusual. You don't hear of a sitting state rep. He's actually to... he's actually kind of started as a political op. He worked for uh, Chet Edwards, the former um, United States congressman from the Waco area, had a district that went from Duncanville South all the way to College Station, various redistricting things. And it was an area that was sort of, for the longest time, one of the identifiers on Chet Edwards was the... Democratic congressman serving in the most Republican district of any Democrat in Congress. Yeah, Chris Turner has a great background for someone who wants to, you know, be a Democrat and win in a state that is purple or red. And he's also been involved with the campaign. He's been doing all the debate stuff for them and setting that up. He was pointed as their point person for that. Yeah, Yeah, even before uh, Wendy Davis announced she was running for governor in Fort Worth, she was kind of part of this Democratic Cabal? Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) They said it, not me. Uh, And it included uh, J.D. and Matt Engel, who uh, both of them are advising Wendy on her campaign. And it included uh, Chris's wife, Lisa Turner, who uh, works, I believe, for Matt Engel. She's worked worked for him and with him in a bunch of campaigns. She's, I guess, now working on the Lone Star Project, which is one one of his enterprises. So So Chris is always... Are always been part of the campaign and kind of part of the the people that uh, Wendy Davis was kind of keeping close to her. You just don't want to say cabal, do you? <laughs> <laughs> but it is strange to have a sitting representative, and he doesn't have to leave his post to do this job, right? But he's no. still, we'll have a sitting representative running a gubernatorial campaign. Right, and he has a libertarian candidate, so he doesn't have a very serious race in the fall. Uh, I'm going to get libertarian hate mail now. Yeah. And uh, I think the libertarians are a sleeping giant waiting to rise up and, <laughs> and win. And the first place that they'll show themselves is in Amon Bethige's email box. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and Chris Turner also is uh, a vice president at a PR firm that open. I think it's called Open Channels Group, and its president, the president of, it is Congressman Mark VC's wife, Tanya VC. And uh, we haven't heard yet if he's planning to step down, but 
I he, can only... he wouldn't have to. I mean, you know, it's, it's just you know, it's just more cabal, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it, these are these are the Democrats I can't that are Lamont in. Said that, yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, th- th- these are the Democrats. You know, uh, Tarrant County has become one of the strongest Republican counties in the state. I think it yields more votes than any of the other big counties. Those are you know, Collin and Denton and Montgomery and Fort Bend, and uh, Tarrant seems to have the highest. Uh, Republican vote yield are one of the highest, but there's this pack of Democrats in and around mostly South Fort Worth, South Tarrant County. Uh, well, it's actually and up spread into out. downtown a little bit. Well, uh, I think Chris Turner's district is actually in the eastern, southeastern part of Tarrant County, so it's it's kind of centered in Fort in South Fort Worth, but it it spreads out to other parts of the county. And and they've been able to hold on in districts like Wendy Davis has that are in other races electing Republicans. I think her district is like a fourteen point. You know, in, in statewide races, the average Republican beats the average Democrat by about 14 points, and yet she's continued to win down there. Um, VC's district, I guess before redistricting, was arguably uh, a swing. Um, you know, they've, they've been they've been um, succeeding in tough environments for a while, so he's got that. But is this shakeup sort of – could that be read as a sign of weakness on the campaign's part? Well, if you were a campaign and you had the choice between having a shakeup and not having a shakeup, not having a shakeup is always better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're going to spin this thing and say, you know, this is the thing where they come out to the and say, well, kids, your mother and I are breaking up, but we still get along and we still love each other. We just don't feel like we can live together. And the kids are going, wait a minute. What was all that China breaking last night? Well, uh, and obviously Republicans are going to spin it as it's a huge shakeup within her campaign to make right. it make them look weak. They're five months from the general election where they are a... You know, a a serious underdog. They're going to have to be raising a bunch of money this summer in order to be competitive in that race. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of work to do, and this is a distraction. So, does this put them back on track, or you know, do they ever get on track? Were they off track? I mean, you've got to you've got to deal with all of those questions internally and externally for a week or so before you can snap into whatever it is you want to do between now and November. Well, didn't Karen Johansson come in because they were perceived to be off track initially? Yeah, yeah, in October. Um, so they've gotten through. I mean, they didn't really have a primary. She didn't have a, a, an opponent, and and yet Jim Hogan still. <laughs> it's a you know, <laughs> we're in the finance prime. We're in we're in the finance part of the election right now. You've got to raise a bunch of money. Greg Abbott's got, I think, at last tried. Somebody remember this number? Thirty million or so. In it was the bank. three times as much as she had. It was just it was about that. It costs about, you know, I mean, we've said this a million times, it costs about a million or a million two a week to advertise at the level you have to advertise in a governor's race. And that advertising has got to start shortly after Labor Day, at or shortly after Labor Day and go for 10 weeks or so. So they have to raise a lot of money. They have a lot of work to do. They have the Republicans have a better organization because they've been winning elections. And, you know, it may be that the shakeup is what they need, but it's, you know. Like I said, not a shakeup is always better than a shakeup. Given the background of Johansson and Turner, it's hard not to think that part of this is they didn't feel they were appealing enough to moderate voters. I, you know, I, that's probably part of it. There's probably some element of, you know, there's this national effort to convert Texas, battleground Texas. There's some national money in this stuff. Maybe over four or six years, the a lot of national Democrats think that they can turn the state Purple, if not at least, if not blue, um, a lighter shade of purple. Well, they've got a they've got a longer they've got a longer plan, and winning an election in the meantime would be nice, but that's not their main goal. And you know, if you're in the Wendy Davis campaign, your main goal is November. Hmm. So there's a there's a little bit of a you know that ought to be symbiotic, but it's not necessarily. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, I know. Looking at November, obviously, as we saw last night, surprises can happen. You never know the for sure the outcome of a race. House Majority Leader Eric Cantor lost his uh, race to hold his seat, which may be a boon to Jeb Hensling. People are saying now, how does that work? Well, Eric Cantor was sort of, you know, the the whispers were that this might be the first Jewish speaker, that when John Boehner steps down, he was the guy in line. He was the House Majority Leader, is the House Majority Leader for, I guess, until January. <laughs> um, and I, I wonder if, how fast your calls stopped getting returned. Um, <laughs> and he, he thought he was, a, you know, by all the accounts, I mean, we didn't follow this race because it's not here, but, you know, just reading the accounts. Virginia. It's, uh, it's, I think no one followed this race. It, well, <laughs> until Cantor thought on Friday, according to a couple stories I read, Cantor thought on Friday he was up 10 to 20 points. You know, the polling was all um, sounds sort of wrong. Sounds sort of Dewhurst for Senate-esque. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you sort of, you know, the, one of the, part of this is you see what you want to see, and you know, um, you know, part of it is this this guy whose name is a headline writer's dream, Brat. Brat beats Cantor. Uh, Evan Smith sounded like it sounded like a dust up at a at a bar mitzvah. Um, but the uh, Brat kind of came out of nowhere and knocked this guy off. So now you've got you changed the politics in Virginia. The Tea Party is you know now jumped in front of this national narrative of the establishment has been beating the Tea Party, you know, Texas for a minute. Everybody thought Texas was different. It turns out that um, maybe that wasn't a trend. Mm -hmm. And then on the national level, you've got, you know, so who would succeed Boehner now? And that's where you start hearing other voices. Jeb Henserling is one of them. Um, Pete Sessions' name was also mentioned. There'll there'll be a a lot of noise here. There are a couple of Texans who might be in position for this. And would that would that help Texas to have the majority leader? Sure. Sure. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, in old school politics, you, you get uh, leadership positions in Congress and you start getting pork for your state, start getting contracts and all of those kinds of things. You've got a party that's against bringing home the bacon. So, you know, what's the point of lining up in the kitchen? But at least they're in the kitchen. And, and <laughs> oh my God. So on the, on the occasion that there is some extra bacon yeah. they want to bring home. If there's bacon yeah. and if nobody's really offended, if, you, if, if nobody else wants this bacon, <laughs> maybe Texas might be in line for it. Well, Alexa, you were at the state GOP convention last week. Uh, would you say that the... Have you ever had more fun than that? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Conventions are great. They're fun. It was a lot of fun, I should say. Would you say that the Tea Party getting out in front of the establishment narrative uh, was there as well as in the Virginia? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a huge part. It was sort of a backdrop to the entire weekend. It was in some of the the leadership who talked during the convention. The vice chairman who was stepping down, vice chairwoman, at one point said, oh, you know, we have to be open to this new wave of Republicans, but also, you know, Tea Party, don't forget that you're standing on the shoulders of the establishment. And it was in, you know, you could feel it. You would see it out in the crowd. There was huge, uh, Ted Cruz was the bell of the ball, but there was also a lot of cheers for Rick Perry. You know, there was sort of this back and forth between these two factions of the GOP, and it was very obvious at the convention. It was kind of like a TED Talks, wasn't it? I mean, he got 40% <laughs> in the poll, 44%. Yeah. 43.4. Yeah, right. something like that. And then everybody else was way behind him. Rick Perry finished fourth in that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and they, you know, at the end, they had sort of this image up on the screen, and it was a huge bar of red for Ted Cruz, and everyone had, you know, the amount of votes they had gotten were tiny little bars <laughs> compared to that one. Well, and that was even just days before he officially lost his or renounced his Canadian citizenship. So 
They even so. as a Canadian, they still <laughs> Even and as a Canadian. I'm running and for president, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I really hope that becomes a bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> Rand Paul came in third, and he spoke at the convention, right? He did. Well, and I just, I found that funny because in 07, the Texas Republican Party held his presidential straw poll, then in Fort Worth, too, and Ron Paul really, really tried for it, and he came in third, too. So I'm kind of wondering if that's his, that's the ceiling that's for that. The Paul, no, that's the Paul position. <laughs> well, you family, know, he had a pretty third. good reception. He was on stage. He was the only one in jeans and not in a full suit. Um, but he got a pretty good reception from people. They were kind of apprehensive when he first got up there. But, you know, once he was telling Hillary and Benghazi jokes, everyone, he got everyone going. Uh-huh. I mean, you can't lose with that sort of material. Uh, it seemed like the big news coming out of it was the changes to the immigration plank of the platform. So what happened there and why were people upset or otherwise or overjoyed, you know, depending on how they took it? Yeah. So two years ago, the Republican Party of Texas adopted an immigration plank that was you know, considered a huge change in the party. It was basically the Texas solution, which called for a guest worker program that would bring in immigrants um, from other countries, Mexico, that would were willing and wanting to work in the U.S. Um, it was a huge change. People celebrated. You know, they were moving toward sort of a more moderate, rational perspective on immigration. And going into this convention, there was a lot of changes. Tea Party Republicans wanted to strip that completely from the platform. Uh, Obviously, there were a lot of Republicans who wanted to keep it because they felt it was, you know, really the only way to keep the party growing. And so they sort of watered down the language, took the guest worker language out, introduced a provisional visa program, which everyone thought would be okay. Um, But then, you know, the Tea Party wanted to pull it out completely, and that's what ended up happening. In the morning of the debate, you know, this is a debate that started at around 10 in the morning and ended at 6 p.m. And does it actually happen there on the floor? Does it all work out behind closed doors? There was committee meetings all week in which they... They sort of established the provisional visa program language. And going into the debate on Saturday with all of the delegates, that's what was presented to them. Um, But, you know, throughout the week, there was people who were calling for repealing the entire text solution. And that's what ended up happening. There was votes in the morning to strip the provisional visa language. That didn't work. Once we broke for lunch and came back, the Tea Party had sort of regrouped. And those activists that were behind pulling it down eventually were able to strip it completely and sort of adopted a more hardline stance on immigration. No in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants, no sanctuary cities, sort of reverting to a lot of the same planks that they had in 2010 and planks that were apparently pulled directly from Dan Patrick's website at one point and sort of, you know, the one amendment that they had suggested began in support of Dan Patrick and had planks <laughs> from his website. And that's the one that everyone thought would have passed because it was sort of pre- presented more concrete. It was in sort of what they call minority report, presented by some of the platform committee. That's what failed in the morning. But in the afternoon, you know, they went into a roll call vote, which is, you know, you have almost 8,000 delegates. They were doing voice votes. This one was too close. So they ended up doing a roll call vote where they had to basically count heads by Senate district and then report all of their totals. Oh, God. Um, well, you know, Patrick's race against Dewhurst was, you know, like the first real signal of how the the party was going. You know, that he made, it, he made a really hardline immigration platform an integral part of his race all the way from the primary where there were four candidates through – 
the runoff where there were it was just him and Dewhurst. And, you know, given the way they voted in the lieutenant governor's race, if that was the referendum, I mean, this this platform is probably pretty reflective of the way they voted. They've, they've still got this divide. We've got a couple of uh, columns up on Trib Talk this morning, George Rodriguez and uh, Artemio Moniz. Uh, writing about, you know, they should have changed it, they shouldn't have changed it. And I, I think they're going to be wrestling with this one for a while. I think it's a it's the probably the proper position for where Republican primary voters are in Texas at the moment. But you have to wonder, and a lot of people in the party and outside the party are wondering if this is where the party wants to plant a flag, you know, looking back two or three years from now, this is going to look like a smart move or look like a you know, one of those moments when your passions got the better of you and you, you know, let's just don't speak of that. <laughs> well, how yeah, much does It was that, a very mu- close vote. I mean, it was a difference of less. There was about 8,000 delegates there in the final vote. It was a difference of less than 1,000 between the yes and the no's. Hmm. How much does it matter, really, what they put into the platform? Do, don't candidates essentially do sort of whatever they want with the platform? Yeah, but you have to, you know, it puts the candidates in a position where they either do or don't have to... to get some daylight between them and the party's position. You know, you have that moment when you say, are you as a candidate for whatever office, you know, county commissioner or governor or whatever it is, you have to say, do you agree with the party's platform on X and Y and Z? And those are always the places of the platform where the those are always the heat-seeking missiles, right? George Bush had this problem. You know, do you believe the party's platform on this? Do you, you know, everybody has this problem. So if you ask Dan Patrick today, you know, are you happy with the, the platform? Yeah, it came right off my website. (laughs) Well, and he spoke to the delegates right right. before it passed, and it very much reflects what he mentioned in his speech, which is largely focused on immigration as supporters held up signs of fences with locks on them that said secure the border. But if you're trying to have this conversation about, you know, a different immigration policy or maybe we should do this or maybe we can compromise on that, you know, you probably wouldn't use the C word like that, you know, compromise right there in front. I think compromise is sort of opposed in the platform. But you would, you know, you would... Um, this this ties you down a little bit. You have to explain why you're different from your party. You know, one of the other things about the Cantor deal is Cantor was seen as the guy. In fact, this may be, in the quick analysis, one of the things that really got him beat. Cantor was seen as one of the people who wanted to work out an immigration reform quickly so that the Republicans could get loose of this and maybe contend for Hispanic votes as that demographic grows and, you know, comes in, comes of voting age. Um, now that he's been defeated, everybody else takes a signal there, looks at the Texas party, takes a signal there. You know, this may push the party to the right on immigration matters all over the place. But then you've got Greg Abbott at the top of the ticket, and he's been a little bit more careful about his rhetoric on immigration. You know, he's sort of been a little bit sly on in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants, saying the system sort of needs to be revamped and what have not. But he's been silent on the plank. I mean, I reached out to them before the convention to see where, what he thought about it and whether he would work to keep the Texas solution in. And there was no response. And post the convention, we still have no response from them. Yeah, I suspect they won't answer unless they have to. there's, You know, it's one of those things where if the party is split, if you're, you know, if you're just trying to get a measure of your own party, never never mind, you know, whatever the Democrats or independents think. If you're just trying to get a measure of your own party and they're split like this, this is dangerous territory. Right. Especially for someone who says he wants 40 percent of the Hispanic vote. Right. Uh, the other change that the convention generated a lot of news about was they this sort of they added language in support of uh, sort of gay conversion therapy. Or, reparative or, therapy. Or, yeah, reparative therapy uh, to sort of for – 
young people or people of any age with sort of same-sex attraction to try to, you know, quote-unquote cure them or change them to be more heterosexual, and which seems to be uh, – could be a touchy subject with younger generations going forward who have less of a problem with gay people and well, gay marriage. And this is also part of, I think, you know, the GOP's ongoing sort of uneasiness, uneasiness and sort of war with science, right, and scientific – consensus with climate change and you have the American Psychiatric Association is pretty adamant about this sort of therapy being a bad thing. They have a long um, sort of political investment in the gods, guns, and gays argument in the Texas Republican Party. And, and that part of the party is still active and vocal. And the social part of the Republican Party uh, has a lot of clout and got a lot of stuff in this platform, including this thing. Uh, the millennials is a real problem. And, and you know, one of the one of the things that the Republicans are going to confront is that they're aging. You know, they've got this this group of people that you know came of age under Reagan and everything, and that group's aging out. And there's another round of potential Republicans growing up, and the millennials are more libertarian, you know, on a lot of these issues than the social conservatives who've dominated the party so far. So you get these splits where they're, you know, maybe in tune on economic issues, on size of government issues, on things like that. And then you turn to social issues, you know, whether it's um, uh, gays or things like medical marijuana or, you know, whatever the issue is, where they're in a different place than the social conservatives. As those voices come up, you know, you'll you'll see the strength of those maybe in future platforms. But right now the party's telling them that the social conservatives on the party. Well, what's interesting is that the homosexuality plank, which was right above the therapy one, they managed to strip some of the language that a lot of gay Republicans had questioned where, you know, homosexuality tears at the fabric of society. That was taken out. And that's why the log cabin Republicans couldn't get their booth at the convention was because of that language. So it, it was in part of, yeah. And so they were able to strip that out. They added language that's sort of more, you know, it's... We don't endorse this, blah, blah, blah. But right. And then they went in and added the therapy language, which, you know, this was pushed by Tea Party activists who said, you know, we are not pushing this on to people, but we want to endorse it so that lawmakers don't have the grounds to pass laws to ban this sort of thing. Was therapy. it Tea Party activists or was it social conservatives? It was Kathy Adams and the Texas. So, so more the Eagle Forum times. Right, social right, conservatives. Okay. Yeah. And that tearing the fab tearing apart the fabric of society line that had been in the platform for years yeah so it's a big deal that got taken out but yeah. sort of overshadowed by this other move right and if you're you know a gay person in texas trying to think trying to decide if you feel like the republican party can speak to you at all it's kind of a question is does this constitute two steps forward one step back or one step forward right. two steps back well and the thing is they that... don't have a problem with you they just want to cure you yes. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is that the immigration debate went on for so long during the floor debate on saturday that they just sort of sped through everything else and right. didn't even debate the homosexuality plank that day mm. you know and after everything was sort of settled there was a lot of activists who were there in favor of pulling the therapy language who you know were upset that they hadn't even been able to debate against this sort of language the problem is a PR problem. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, you know, um, all the comedy shows, all the all the talk shows, you know, it's a, it's a laugh line. It's a place where you can make fun of Texas Republicans for a while. And, and you know, you just don't need that kind of PR, um, especially if it's not a really well thought out, well discussed, well debated 
point in your platform. I mean, if they really, you know, thought about it and talked about it and decided this is what they want to do, that would be one thing. But it sounds like they kind of ran into it. Yeah, they didn't have any. You know, there's 200 amendments filed. 153 of them were on immigration. So there was 50 that could have at least either touched on this or maybe or could have focused on other aspects of it. But this was largely one of the other points of contention, and the, they didn't get to even talk about it. The jokers on the Democratic side have already seized on it and said that they're going to put a thing in their platform for reparative therapy for the Tea Party members. So we're off to the races. Well, I'm, I'm sure the, the one thing that everyone can agree on is that they love a robust public transportation system. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Oh, man. That's, so the luckily, kind of, that's the kind of road we've been driving on. Yeah. In Texas. <laughs> I, you know, I, I wonder if any of them took Uber or Lyft rides home from the convention. Uh, to fill us in on that, those opportunities, here's Amon. <laughs> How long are we working on that? <laughs> Not very long. Well, I wrote about Uber and Lyft in Texas this week. Can you week. explain what those things are? Sure. It's um, they're they're two s- nonsense words. <laughs> two San Francisco-based companies that have... Um, let in in different cities let you with their mobile app uh, connect with essentially freelance taxi drivers that use their own cars, pay their own expenses and gas, and uh, Uber and Lyft you you pay through the app. Uh, the app tells you where the driver is, and you know the app uses your GPS to find out where you are. And in a lot of cities, it's become very popular. It's a lot faster in t- in many ways and more convenient than traditional taxis. But also, they cities most cities don't have laws that even allow for this kind of service to operate legally. And Texas is one, clearly one of the biggest markets for Uber and Lyft. They're now in five cities, uh, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, and Corpus Christi. They both have plans to expand. Uh, Uber is already looking for drivers in El Paso, Amarillo, Lubbock, and Waco. Uh, and every time one of them enters the city, the other one, the other company immediately jumps in. Uh, they're clearly trying to fight for market share for drivers and customers and hoping that, you know, we get them first, they'll stay loyal to us. And they're ignoring the fact that in every single one of these cities they're operating in, they're technically violating local laws. Uh, you, you, the local laws uh, have been set up for, you know, traditional taxi companies to get permits and have special rules about what drivers they can use and sometimes have rules about the drivers have to be able to Drive any any drive a passenger anywhere they want in the city. Uh, some some cities have rules about uh, you, some part of your fl- fleet has to have wheel, wheelchair accessible vehicles. Uber and Lyft don't have any of the don't follow any of this. Uh, and so while it's very popular, they also with, set rates for things like airport rides and exactly and oh and and setting fares. That's another thing. Uber and Lyft, you know, they do not follow the local city rules about what you can charge fares. They often charge more or just their pricing system is just completely different. And so. While it's very popular, it's also a question of uh, – I've talked to some city officials who feel like Uber's great if it doesn't put the, ta- the taxi company out of business. If it does, what does that mean for someone in a wheelchair who relies on taxis to get around? Or what does it mean for the poor neighborhood that isn't going to get a lot of Uber uh, drivers? What does it mean for someone who doesn't have a smartphone that wants a taxi? <laughs> well, it seems like, you know, just as – as many industries have sort of been thrown into flux because of technology, right? It seems like taxis com- companies need to probably consider updating or modernizing to the extent that they can. I know, like, Yellow Cab here in Austin has some new app where they, you can try to hail them, but honestly, it does not work very it well. It does not. Like, it just, it, like <laughs> their phone lines don't work. No to Yellow Cab. Uber, I mean, you know, as a consumer, when I'm in New York, I can just press a button on my phone when I'm in my friend's Do apartment. Do they operate in New York? 
Yeah. Oh yeah. And really by the so, so you can so, be so, so the home the, of the million dollar medallion has Uber. The, we're not taxi? without a fight, but yeah, yeah. Right. it's still going. You can the fight's still the, going on. Like, I was in my friend's apartment and I hit a button, and by the time I walked down to the street, there was a car waiting for me with you know water bottles and you know super clean and wow. took me where I needed to go, uh, and uh, you know it was just wonderful. It, <laughs> it was a great experience. Was it expensive? Uh, not not particularly. Part of it is, you know, it's like this whole new thing where it sort of is just it ha- the payment happens automatically, so you sort of don't even think about it. So, I mean, <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe, you know. maybe it you're, was. You you're actually broke right now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. The simple vacuum cleaner attached like, to your bank was, account. It right? was like thirty bucks to go from the Lower East Side to Brooklyn, where I needed to go. But um, so, I mean, you know, you, you can needed s- to go to catch that. <laughs> you can see, you can see the the appeal for, you know, people in the community. Yeah, a lot of cities are trying to figure out. Okay, if we do change our regulations to allow these companies to operate legally, what do we have to do? We have to somehow let the taxi drivers not follow the same rules they've always followed because it's not fair for them to have to pay these high permitting fees and follow all these rules that this other company that just came in doesn't have to follow. Corpus Christi is an interesting example. They're right now, they just ended a grace period that they had given to Uber and Lyft and are now ticketing, say they're going to ticket and impound vehicles. Uh, But one of their rules is that the taxi company has to have an office in the city. So what does that mean for a company like Uber or Lyft? What is the what role does the state play? I mean, will we see the taxi lobby rise up in the next I, session? You know, Colorado just passed statewide regulations to allow for Uber and Lyft, but they did put regulations in that the company doesn't follow in, in almost anywhere else in the country. So, uh, but I think Uber and Lyft kind of agreed with these regulations. And California, it's a statewide thing that is allowed for those companies to thrive. So I bet you're going to see us next session. Someone's going to file a bill, and Uber and Lyft both have lobbyists in Austin. So and Iman will write about it. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yes, <laughs> that's actually where this is a perfect place to end because we are out of time. So thank you, Alexa and Iman and Ross. Uh, we'd also like to thank Shiny Ribs, who does our music, and encourage everyone out there to send your questions and comments to tribcast at texastribune.org and also go to iTunes and review us. So on behalf of everyone I just thanked and our producer Todd. This is Reeve. Thanks for listening. Take me to the airport. $5 extra if you don't say anything.